Tired of long waits and rushed care at the ER and urgent care clinic? Next time, stay home and let Dispatch Health bring the power of the hospital to you. I call Dispatch Health. A care team of medical professionals actually come to your house. They're the same caliber of people that you would see if you were at a hospital or an urgent care. Dispatch Health can treat most non-life-threatening emergencies. They can do the x-rays, they can do stitches. Urinary tract infections, blood tests, urinalysis, ultrasound. It's almost everything that they can do at the ER. You never feel rushed. They're there for you and only you. I felt like their only patient. And it costs no more than a trip to urgent care because Dispatch Health is covered by most insurance, including Medicare. See if we serve your home at DispatchHealth.com. Dispatch Health really went above and beyond. It's wonderful to have care come to your home. House calls are back and they're better than ever. Learn more at DispatchHealth.com. The following is a Dead Bug Podcast. Remember... Listening to one of my podcasts is like fucking with your eyes closed. Watching one of my films is like fucking with your eyes open. I know what I'd rather do. Between the summer of 1963 and the autumn... In 1965, a horrific crime would culminate here on Saddleworth Moor. A crime that will repulse and shock a nation and will forever define a stretch of land just outside of Manchester, England. These were calculated, cruel, and cold-blooded murders. Because these were the most heinous of crimes. Because they were crimes against children. Photographed. And they recorded the audio. The crowds who gathered at Chester Crown Court heard a tape recording Hindley had made of her victim being tortured. And after the couple had finished with their playthings, their small bodies were buried on this here moor. Police and volunteers dug for their victims, incredulous at the task they were being asked to perform. And two and three people that have found those children. After being sentenced for her crimes, Hindley became Britain's longest-serving prisoner, never to be released alive. And now immortalized by their stony and different glances on the day of their arrest. This is a story that should have never had to have been told. The story of the Moors murders. monetary awards for British prisoners worldwide. Billy Rose, 
a low rider. Billy Rose was a night fighter. Billy Rose knew trouble like the sound of his own name. Busted on a drunken charge, driving someone else's car. The local midnight sheriff's claim to fame. But we'll raise, raise the prison to the ground. Help us raise, raise the prisons to the ground. Catchy, but for reasons unknown, she didn't win. Nineteen sixties, Manchester, England, a boil on the ass of England that no one wants to pop for fear of what's inside. A syphilitic brick cage of poverty, with slums that the government have deemed uninhabitable, and yet they still are. And this is where Ian Brady and Myra Hindley met, and formed their ungodly union. Where during the year and a half of their relationship, they would seep deeper and deeper into depravity. Myra was hired as the new secretary at the factory that Brady worked at, Millwood's Merchandise Limited. And I guess the rest will be recorded in history. Brady loathed his Scottish working class roots, referring to the working class as maggots. And he encouraged Myra to feel the same. People who'd grown up with Myra Hindley say they noticed an immediate change when she started dating Ian. An arrogance and a hatred towards the world around her. It was 19-year-old David Smith, Hindley's teenage brother-in-law, that had blown the whistle on the couple. Figuring because he was a teenage tearaway, he might want to get involved in some of the action. I guess they were wrong. Myra and Ian had recently moved in with her grandmother on a new council estate, Wardle Brook Avenue. They'd given the grandmother sleeping pills, then went out cruising to find a plaything, and history has documented that they found one. Little is known about 17-year-old Edward Edwards, except for he was a factory apprentice who had most likely missed his last train home. Brady said that he and Hindley had gone out cruising and he'd gone into the train station and left Myra in the car while he went looking for runaways. He'd offered the kid a place to stay that night and a meal and a drink and told him he could most likely fuck Myra. But as he was balls deep, he got an axe in the back of his head. Thinking the kid was dead, Myra walked two blocks down the road to get her brother-in-law to help dispose of the body. When they returned to the house, Myra's dog was barking insanely and the kid was fighting with Brady. Brady chopped him three more times in the head and ended it. With Smith terrified of what he was seeing and now afraid for his life, he agreed to help. All while Myra's grandmother was upstairs on sleeping pills. But Myra and Brady had made a big mistake because although Smith was a petty thief, he was no killer. After helping Brady wrap the body in plastic and put it in a spare room while Myra kept a lookout in case her grandmother woke up, he then went home got Myra's sister to make him a sandwich and a cup of tea. Then he threw up after eating it, and he told her the whole thing. And the first signs of daylight, he went to a phone booth and called the cops. Cops were soon to realize it wasn't Brady's first murder, 
but they were gonna make sure it was his last. It was July 12, 1963, and pretty 16-year-old Paula Reed was going to a local dance. She thought her friends were unable to attend, so she was walking alone. Little did she know they were there to meet her and surprise her. But she'd never make that dance. Myra, driving a borrowed work van, spotted Reed walking by herself and offered her a ride. Pauline Reed had recognized Myra knowing her younger sister and accepted that ride. Pauline's death clock was now ticking. She told the child she'd lost one of her expensive gloves on the moor and asked for help finding it. But little did she know that Brady was following them a short distance behind. The couple's sadomasochistic relationship was now moving to the next level, as they had planned to commit the perfect murder together. Brady had wanted to abduct a kid no older than five or six years old, but the couple agreed that this would bring too much heat to the neighborhood and settled on a teenager as they would go unnoticed. It's by Ian Brady's own account that the dude dragged her out to the moors and they raped the girl, and as they were having sex with her, he cut her throat from ear to ear, almost removing her head, and it intensified their orgasms. And they buried her while her body was still warm. When Pauline hadn't shown up at the dance that afternoon, it was as the couple had expected. She was just considered another runaway teen. And the cops weren't interested. And except for immediate family and friends, her memory faded which I guess was good news for the murderous couple, because they were just getting started. It was the afternoon of November 23rd, 1963, and 12-year-old John McBride had been mooching around the house, picking on his younger brother and sister. When his mother sent them out, told them to go find something to do. Work off all that youthful energy. So he started helping out in the local fruit market for some spare change. When the market closed and he was walking home, Henley spotted him and offered him a ride. And on the way back, she used the same line about her missing expensive glove on the moor. And she offered Kilbride some money if he could help her find it, saving up for a new bike that Santa couldn't afford. The offer was too good to refuse. But unfortunately, the next bike that John Kilbride would be riding would be in heaven. Because Ian Brady, once again, was following a short distance behind on his motorcycle. It was by Brady's account that they took the kid out into the moors, and they shared him. And they shared him good. With Brady taking the lead and ass-fucking the kid, and then slitting his throat. But he wouldn't die. So he strangled the kitten as he lay there bleeding out with his own shoelaces. Brady would later remark to the cops that on the ride home, Myra told him that she could have swore she heard the kid coughing as they were filling in the hole. I guess even serial killing scumbags make mistakes. John Kilbride was found October 21st, 1965, rotted. There were unconfirmed reports that dirt had been found in his lungs. Not much to saddle worth more. I guess you could say if hell had a playground, it'd be it. The only thing that grows is cotton grass and moss. 
Not much else. With a biting cold wind that blows all year round, never seems to take a break. Guess it's not much of a place to live. There's certainly no place to die. Tired of long waits and rushed care at the ER and urgent care clinic? Next time, stay home and let Dispatch Health bring the power of the hospital to you. I call Dispatch Health. A care team of medical professionals actually come to your house. They're the same caliber of people that you would see if you were at a hospital or an urgent care. Dispatch Health can treat most non-life-threatening emergencies. They can do the x-rays, they can do stitches, urinary tract infections, blood tests, urinalysis, ultrasound. It's almost everything that they can do at the ER. You never feel rushed. They're there for you and only you. I felt like their only patient. And it costs no more than a trip to urgent care because Dispatch Health is covered by most insurance, including Medicare. See if we serve your home at DispatchHealth.com. Dispatch Health really went above and beyond. It's wonderful to have care come to your home. House calls are back and they're better than ever. Learn more at DispatchHealth.com. In secret prison recordings, Samira Henley. She seems more put out than a woman showing any remorse. They sat me down behind a table, and on the table was a large poster of John Kilbride. And they had this album of photographs, and they said to me, will you just identify these pictures or photos or tell us if, you, if you've seen them before? And I looked, and it was a moorland scene. I couldn't say I hadn't, because I was standing on a rock, and I said, yes. Um, and then they turned over the page, and it was horrendous. It was a picture, a photograph, of just after they'd unearthed the body of John Kilbride. And I turned my head away, and I said, I'm not when the police got the train station team back to the mortuary and threw him on the cutting board, I guess I weren't thinking much of it. Man comes home from work, catches another man, balls deep in his lady, picks up an axe near the fireplace, sticks it in the back of his head. Nothing that any other man wouldn't do, or at least a real man. Just another Wednesday night in Manchester. But if the fish and chip eating cops had dug a little deeper, they would have saw the forced entry into the kid's ass. A forced entry that would provide a key to expose a litany of depravity. But with 1960s forensics being on par with a monkey playing with a kid's chemistry set, that won't gonna happen. The next morning, there was a knock on the back door. And I opened the door. And to cut a long story short, it was a policeman dressed in a baker's uniform on his jacket and hat. It had uh, some blessed on the pocket. And the first thing I said was, you've got the wrong house. We have mother's pride. When police entered the house, they discovered the body of Edward Evans, wrapped up like a ham and cheese sandwich in the spare bedroom. They arrested Brady immediately, but they made a fatal error not arresting Henley as well. Although they questioned both of them, neither of them said a word. And over the next three days, Henley 
started destroying evidence, most of which had been hidden at their workplace. But nevertheless, over those next three days, cops tore apart the house where they found mementos from the other crimes, including in the spine of a Bible, a ticket receipt to luggage stored at a nearby train station. And in the suitcase was an audio tape of a little girl being raped with pictures to go with it. And on the audio tape, they heard Brady and Hindley. So it was on the fourth day, at 6.30 in the morning, she was arrested. It was within 10 days of her arrest, using photographs retrieved from her grandmother's loft, they were able to find the location and retrieve the bodies of both 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey and 17-year-old Edward Evans. Experts are still trying to pick apart the monsters that we know today. Ian Brady was born into the slums of Scotland to a single mother who couldn't put food on the table. A waitress unable to afford childcare, she eventually had to give up the child for adoption. Never knowing his real father, Brady was a bitter child who got his rocks off from torturing animals. The boy had an extreme temper, which usually ended up with him banging his head on the floor. Was shit at sports and called a sissy by the other children. Was obsessed with motorcycles, guns, and the Nazis. I guess it's safe to say everyone knew it wasn't gonna end well. Myra Hindley's background, on the other hand, wasn't much different. Raised in poverty to a drunken father who regularly knocked her around. Her hatred for her father and that relationship may have made the woman who went on to be a killer. It was a Tuesday afternoon after school and 12-year-old Keith Bennett's grandmother called him and said she needed him to come over and help her load some boxes into her car and that she'd drive him back home afterwards. It was an appointment that Keith would never make. Hindley, once again driving the van that Ian had borrowed from work, picked up the kid and offered him a ride, and then said she needed help finding a glove. Little did the kid know that Brady was hiding in the back. Driving out to the moors, according to Myra, Hindley told her to wait in the van, and he took the kid from a walk, and only one returned. When he came back, he had a big smile on his face, and according to her, he smelled like shit. When she asked him what happened, he told her that he fucked the kid and then strangled him with his own shoelaces. And I guess she had no reason to disbelieve him. But Keith Bennett's mother was having a hard time believing it was gone. I had the terrible feeling that something had happened to him right away because he wasn't the kind of boy who would leave home for any reason. And uh, he was quite happy and very pleasant, always singing and whistling. And I just couldn't see him going away with anyone, unless it was in an innocent way, perhaps to do a little job or something like that. He'd be enticed into a car that way. But it seems that even Myra Hindley wasn't impervious to pings of guilt when she heard the relatives speak of the dead. The worst parts of it were seeing Mrs. West in the witness box. And I was looking at her as she was giving evidence. And she saw me looking at her, and she screamed across at me, how can you look at me? And she called me every name under the sun. And it suddenly hit me, just what I'd done. And I think he sensed this. We were sitting next to each other, and he just put his arm his hand on my arm and squeezed my arm 
And I turned around and looked at him and he was telling me with his eyes to keep quiet. For 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey, Christmas had been good. She'd received everything she wanted, including a chatty Kathy doll, as well as money from both of her grandparents. Money that she was dying to spend. And Leslie Ann wanted to go to the fair that was in town, and I was only there on the 29th of December, but her parents told her no, because she had no one to go with. But being strong-willed, Leslie Ann said, she was going with or without their permission. So they finally gave in and agreed to let the child go. And that was the last time they saw their sweet angel alive. Ian and Myra couldn't believe their luck when they saw the pretty young girl alone. It was Christmas come late. So they followed her for a bit. Then they circled around and pretended to drop their bags in front of the child, asking her if she could help them bring them to the car. And of course, Leslie said yes. Sweet, trusting. She didn't know anything different. And besides, she'd always been taught by her parents to be polite. And her mother would recall that to the journalists. They've not been found in Leslie. I still had hope that she was alive because I didn't think anyone would harm her, you know. Mm. Because she, she wasn't a child that would cheek anybody to be harmed. When detectives found the tape inside the suitcase at the train station that belonged to Brady, and they played it. And they looked at the photos of Leslie. They wept. Because it seemed inconceivable to them. But not only would someone hurt a child, but they would record it and take pictures as she was raped, tortured, and finally murdered. With her last words, or at least her last recorded words, being mummy, please help me, while the Christmas song Little Drummer Boy played in the background. I'm finding it very, very difficult to do this Leslie and Downey thing. I think I'll have to be as brief as possible. There was that tape, which isn't what people think it is, but it's bad enough, and I just, was a 16-minute audio tape where the voices of Brady and Hindley can clearly be heard ordering Leslie Ann Downey to undress and then having sex with her and the sound of her being strangled convinced the judge of the couple's guilt. It was at the time that the Moore's murders were held up as an example of the consequences of the moral decay of Great Britain. Historical analysts believe that it was the end of an era of innocence in the country where people believed that children were able to go out unsupervised. 
The murders were the start of modern-day tabloid journalism in Great Britain. Ian Brady and Myra Hindley were given life sentences. Brady was given three life sentences and Hindley two, where they were told that they would die in prison. The death sentence had been abolished in the United Kingdom only four months before the start of their trial. Many believed that Myra's brother-in-law, David Smith, was in on the murders. And there was a campaign of hate aimed at Smith and Myra's sister after the trial. The duration of their imprisonment is now entirely at the discretion of the Home Secretary. The Home Office said tonight that a life sentence means just what it says. The funerals for the children eventually found were well attended, accompanied by a large outpouring of public grief. I guess because everybody knew it could have been one of their children. Both Ian Brady and Myra Hindley would offer to help to find the last missing body, Keith Bennett, but they failed. The expanse of barren landscape would be like looking for a needle in a haystack. Keith Bennett's mother would spend the rest of her life looking for her son, often going to the mall herself with a shovel. She died in 2012. Police say the tape of Leslie Ann Downey will never be heard and is locked away. Myra Hindley died in prison in November 2002 from respiratory failure. Ian Brady died in a mental institution in 2017 of obstructive pulmonary disease. This podcast is dedicated to all those lost souls of children who won't be coming home. You've been listening to a Dead Bug Podcast. Dead Bug says no more. Tired of long waits and rushed care at the ER and urgent care clinic? Next time, stay home and let Dispatch Health bring the power of the hospital to you. I call Dispatch Health. A care team of medical professionals actually come to your house. They're the same caliber of people that you would see if you were at a hospital or an urgent care. Dispatch Health can treat most non-life-threatening emergencies. They can do the x-rays, they can do stitches. Urinary tract infections, blood tests, urinalysis, ultrasound. It's almost everything that they can do at the ER. You never feel rushed. They're there for you and only you. I felt like their only patient. And it costs no more than a trip to urgent care because Dispatch Health is covered by most insurance, including Medicare. See if we serve your home at DispatchHealth.com. Dispatch Health really went above and beyond. It's wonderful to have care come to your home. House calls are back, and they're better than ever. Learn more at DispatchHealth.com.